Oh, geez, you guys. I'm not sure if we're in for a treat with this one or a nightmare. This is another one of those WTF covers I bought because it was too ugly to put back on the shelf. It looks like Dune on acid. And the cover line, Stranger in the Strangest Land, is a reference to another book. Is this going to be an original story, a parody, or a comedic homage in the style of Scream? Whatever the case, hang on for the ride. <laughs> um, parental advisory, I guess? Halt. This is Erica from the future. This is not a children's episode due to disturbing subject matter and discussion about sexual content touching on incest and assault. We won't go into much detail so as not to alienate anybody, but you've been warned. Thanks. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, your portal into science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Too weird, too old, too much movie. This is where we investigate paperback and hardback originals. I'm your host, Erica Brickley. I post pictures of my library at Erica Brickley on Instagram. Follow me there, subscribe to the YouTube channel, click the share button, even if all you do is copy the link. <laughs> you know the drill. Thanks for joining me for the weird cover episode. Oh, Neil Barrett Jr. Oh, Josh Kirby, what have you created? Today's book is the 1974 classic sci-fi novel, Stress Pattern. This is one of the standouts on my bookshelf. <laughs> Published by Da Books SF, my paperback has a startlingly pink cover with a mind-bending scene painted by Josh Kirby, executed with his signature detail and depth, for better or for worse. Several figures are standing in the desert, where an enormous gray worm looms over them. It's faceless, wrinkly, a bit hairy, and so long that the undulations of its tail disappear into the distance. One of the four figures looking at the not-Arakian sandworm is a human man dressed in futuristic space captain clothes. The other three are much shorter, bald, and naked, with distended stomachs, shiny gold or yellow skin, skinny limbs, and big hands and feet. One appears to be female, having more pronounced breasts, and wears a wide-brimmed hat. In the left-hand corner is a pile of what look like bombs? Dark, round things with fuses that could be eggs, uh, which the female Martian person is holding some of. Hmm. Well, I wonder what on earth this book is about. <laughs> Though I'm not going to read the back to you, I will say that it ends with this line. A deceptively easy novel. Delightful reading. It will turn out to be something you will not forget in a hurry. Honey, I don't think I'll ever forget this book based on the cover alone. <sighs> okay, who is Neil Barrett Jr.? Well, he has a pretty short Wikipedia page, but he was nominated for Hugo and Nebula Awards, did some cool stuff at conventions, and was named an author emeritus by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. A Texas native, he wrote science fiction and crime thrillers with a touch of screwball comedy, as well as worked on novelizations for Judge Dredd and Dungeons and Dragons. Otherwise, I've never heard of any of his books. Sorry, Mr. Barrett. He passed away in his 80s in 2014. Considering how little I know about this author or this book, I think we should jump right in. The only thing left to say is that this is one of those paperbacks with a single black-and-white illustration on one of the title pages. 
This one shows a spaceman running away as his crashed ship is swallowed by a giant mouse coming up out of the sandy ground. Again, totally not Arrakis. Are we clear? Okay, let's go. Chapter 1 A lone man takes stock of what he has after crashing on an unknown, colorless, sandy world. He has nothing to do but count his cans of water and food, then stack them in different arrangements beside the escape capsule, or walk up the closest thing to a hill for a better look at the unchanging landscape. Unfortunately, the work proves pointless, since a giant black thing, mostly mouth, rises out of the sand and devours the lot while the man is on his hillside. His semblance of a home is gone in seconds. The only thing left is a music tape that needed the ship capsule to play. The three weeks he'd planned to stay here, based on his rations, had shortened to mere minutes. Not sure if he is lucky or unlucky, the man heads out in a random direction. He doesn't actually know what happened to the spaceship he'd been in, having thought the alarms were just a drill, and the escape capsule wouldn't actually jettison him into space, followed by a swift planet-side landing. He stepped out into breathable air. If there were other survivors, he did not see them or their capsules. The astronaut really just an economics teacher, is lucky to have gotten off the spaceship and lucky not to have been in the capsule when the dirt demon ate it. The endless desert ahead, the hot sun, and his dry throat inform him that his luck may have run out. Just then, a pot-bellied, brownish-gray creature crosses his path. Chapter 2 The man is so elated that he almost waves at the creature, but controls himself and gets a better look. It is humanoid, but not like him. He fights his fears, desperate for water. However, quote, I never imagined that he would simply not give a damn. Unquote. Introducing himself as Andrew Gavin, the man tries to make introductions, but the creature says something in its own language, Fredonish, and keeps walking. So, Andrew calls after it, and the creature asks a reluctant question, something like, What do you want? And in that moment, Andrew realizes that the world is conducive to telepathic contact, because he suddenly knows clearly what the creature has to say. Understanding simply comes from being here. Andrew admits that later on, he was creeped out to think back on how little he reacted to this, how it just settled into his mind. Again, introductions. He is Andrew, and the humanoid is Fretzi. The creature isn't interested in the stranger's origin, nor in sharing about himself. At least Fretzy is patient with the dull conversation. Andrew has the opportunity to get a good look at the skinny arms and legs, the pot belly, the straw hat, the naked, dun-colored skin, the evidence of his maleness. <laughs> Fretzy's face is actually the most alien thing about him, in Andrew's mind. A face with almost nothing of note. Just black, liquid eyes, a nose, and a mouth more dull than what a child could smoosh into clay. So, Andrew goes with the alien who doesn't seem to care either way. Quote, Fretzy, I told him, I'm thirsty. I need water. Do you understand? Is there some place nearby where I can get water? Fretzy came to a stop. For the first time, his pinpoint eyes showed a glimmer of puzzlement. Yes, Andrew. Yes, what? Yes, there is some place nearby where you can get water. Fine. Where? Again, a faint shard of curiosity. You don't know where water is, Andrew? I took a deep breath. No, no I don't, Fretzy. He almost blinked. Where? I asked, with as much patience as I could muster. Where, Fretzy? There, Andrew. 
I followed his stubby finger. It pointed directly at the ground. I looked at him, trying to read something more. Great Jesus, was I supposed to dig a well? Now? Fritzy? I paused. Fritzy, I'm new here. You say water is there. Do you really mean that it's there in the ground? I had a sudden inspiration. When you're thirsty, what do you do? Get water, Andrew. Near desiccation gives a man patience. Fritzy, would you do something for me? Silence. Would you help me find water? No, Andrew. The sides of my throat were rubbing each other raw. For God's sake, why not? Fretzy moved easily around me and walked away. Unquote. As Fretzy keeps walking, Andrew begins digging, unsure what else to do. In just a few minutes, he is through the harder first layer, down to softness that reveals pale green artichoke-sized bulbs in the ground. By plucking them and pinching the bottom, Andrew gets himself a globe of water. Satisfied, he follows Fretzy. Chapter 3 Andrew now has new words to live by. He who keeps his mouth shut and watches dun-colored strangers may yet survive. Fretzy walks, and Andrew follows. Fretzy stops at a tiny pile of rocks, so Andrew does too. Fretzy stops beside a great canyon. Andrew stops. And Andrew learns that the underground bulbs not only hold water, but are also wholly edible. Fretzy lies down, flat on his back to sleep, and Andrew does his best to do the same. The hard ground and a cool breeze makes sleeping difficult. In the morning, they are not alone. A male and a female have joined Fretzy. They all look into the canyon while Andrew wanders around, waiting. It gives him time to think about the bleak future ahead of him. He's 40 now and expects to live to 100. Will he spend all those years eating bulbs? At the university, Andrew had had a reputation for being dull and stuffy, yet here he risked becoming the loudmouth. The female creature begins staring at Andrew, and eventually lies down with her legs outspread, neither of the males taking any notice. Though Andrew has heard spacers say that aliens get more attractive with time away from home, he doesn't yet agree and is repulsed. Andrew tries to wait her out, assuming she'll give up, but she does not. Instead, Fretzy steps in, the deed is done, and everyone returns to staring out at the canyon, which Andrew has nicknamed the Great Groove. And suddenly, Andrew learns why they are all gathered here. Chapter 4 The creatures begin digging in the soil, and Andrew joins them. They dig up bulbs and make piles, then those piles are rolled into the groove. Andrew's companions then return to standing and waiting, all looking in one direction where the groove disappears out of sight. Bored, Andrew dangles his legs over the edge and counts the bulbs they rolled in. When he looks up to see something coming, something big, he quickly backs away. It's one of those dirt demons that ate his escape capsule. A cross between a worm and a caterpillar, the dark demon is unbelievably huge, with some light segments, some dark segments with hairy bristles. Its featureless head barrels towards the motionless creatures at the side of the canyon. It fills the groove, half again as tall as the gorge it travels along, with no end in sight. Now Andrew knows why Fretzy traveled here, why he stopped at the stone pile, why he waited by the groove, why he was joined by two others. They were waiting for this enormous thing, which stopped and breathed foul air from between its segments. It eats the piles of bulbs that the group pushed into the groove. Andrew watches in horror as the alien creatures climb up the worm's bristles, wait for the breathing slits to open, then slip inside before they clamp shut. At first Andrew watches the worm begin to slide away, 
He doesn't care about Fretzy or the others. But then he imagines himself surviving on bulbs in the desert, alone, and runs to catch up to where Fretzy disappeared. He grabs the bristles, slips inside, and promptly throws up in disgust. Chapter 5 The smell is overwhelming, and Andrew can barely hold on for his retching. Eventually, he's able to look around at the colorful insides of the worm creature, where many of the humanoids squat alone, in pairs, or in groups as the flesh train moves across the landscape. In his mind, Andrew nicknames this the Alimentary Express, referring to the worm's gastrointestinal tract where everyone rides. Andrew finds his original companion. Fretzy, where are we going? There, Andrew. Andrew settles in, accepting the silence and the smell. He studies his neighbors. Some are quite fat, some taller than him, and others look like Fretzy. Three intelligent species on one planet? None seems dominant. Perhaps apathy is the key to survival here. Even Andrew manages to nod off, only to wake up when the worm stops and barely make it out after Fretzy. They soon arrive at a sort of prairie dog town of holes. Here, everyone looks like Fretzy, and Andrew realizes that he has been left alone, one imaginary friend poorer. Chapter 6 For someone who always made plans, Andrew is set adrift. He eats, he wanders to have a look at one of the worm trails that intersects with the one he rode along, he watches the aliens dump fiber sacks into the groove. So far, the worms seem to be the only thing of interest on this planet, a domesticated transport line. With no idea what else people do with themselves, Andrew leaves the village behind. Towards nightfall, he finds an actual hut with a thatched roof and hurries to have a look. It turns out to belong to a very ugly creature that looks like a patchwork of parts. Quote, Tall, in places, one arm short and powerful, one gaunt and bony, the left hand stubby and multi-fingered, the right long, slim, tapering to a single digit, legs equally varied. His face was an egg crushed in the middle and hurriedly patched. A nose that began as a stub, angled off into the beginnings of a beak, then gave the whole thing up and fell off into a snout. One eye grossly larger than the other. A mouth full-lipped on one side, a gap on the other. His head and body were covered with random patches of hair. He was dun, beige, khaki, brown, or umber. Depending upon where you looked, he'd made a sorry mess of the sex problem. The less said about that, the better. Unquote. The person's name is Thraxel, and he welcomes Andrew Goffa inside with a smile. This hut and an oil lamp are the closest things to familiar culture Andrew has seen since crash landing, and they are a relief. Thraxel is quite delighted to have another person like himself, someone different from the pot-bellied people Andrew rode the dual worm with, though he lists various place names that are unfamiliar, and Andrew just lets it stand that he's from very, very far away. Thraxel asks about Andrew's clothes, accepting that Andrew came from somewhere colder, and shows off his own woven mat blanket. Unfortunately, Thraxel becomes suspicious when Andrew asks if everybody is like that, doing so little. Most everybody, Thraxel says. Listen, why you ask it, huh? Why you ask it, Andrew Gaffa? You already knows that. They sending you to do something to me? Said it? What they wanting me to do? Why didn't they just leave me alone? The alien curls up against the wall and falls asleep. Full of questions, Andrew watches the oil lamp. Chapter 7 
Andrew wakes up alone, scratching at his stubble. He thinks about his old tinkering friend, McAllister, who would have figured out where the water is on this planet, and so on. He joins Thraxel for morning bulbs, and they agree that the hut is more comfortable than holes in the ground. Dummers, Thraxel says. Stupids. Before they go back inside, the misshapen man wants to know more about where Andrew came from, and when he hears about it, Thraxel wants to go there. It pains Andrew to know that this ugly yet sensitive person is aware of other places out there, but neither of them is capable of reaching Earth. Thraxel doesn't think he'd be allowed to go there even if he could. Leaving the poor thing to lament, Andrew visits the settlement again and feels very alone. But where was there to go? Get back in a worm and ride forever? Well, what else is there to do? Andrew joins a crowd waiting for the duel and helps with the pile of bulbs, then prepares to board as the worm comes to a stop. But Andrew can't get on. He can't get through the crowd of short people. He realizes that this is on purpose and watches the duel go on its way in confusion. They make a path with their bodies that indicate that he is to leave, just not via public transit. So he does, walking with the groove to his left. Suddenly, a female comes up behind Andrew, and he assumes it's the one he met before. She tells him not to come back, to stay away from crazy Thraxel. She also gives him something wrapped in fiber before turning and going back home. Chapter 8 Andrew walks for three eventless days. A duel passes by, a line of people appears in the distance, Andrew sits to watch them, observing their beasts of burden and the way they cross the Great Groove. It hadn't occurred to Andrew you could cross it, so he follows out of boredom. That night, Andrew has a nightmare that his escape capsule comes alive and begins eating him. He wakes up to discover that he has been tied down by the aliens, who just stare at him without answering his questions. He kicks one in the shins, and the other two back off, not sure how to handle violence. The one he kicked goes down and comes back with a bamboo pole, and Andrew gets up to avoid being beaten with it. Andrew is kept with the livestock in the hot sun, arms bound behind him, tied to a pole. Chapter 9 Another caravan arrives, and the two begin laying out their goods. Andrew's group has bamboo poles, the other has rope and straw hats. A silent bargaining war begins, with one person putting forth their proposal and the other editing the piles. Andrew falls asleep, hungry and thirsty. The next morning, he's tied to the beasts and walks between them. He gets his first glimpse of a crude stone knife as ropes are cut from his legs. They walk all morning, passing a rundown section of the Great Groove and stop at noon. Having finally eaten, Andrew tries again to get some answers, but is met with silence. He never gets an answer, because the aliens and animals all go stock still, hearing something Andrew can't, and then suddenly the animals bolt. Tied to two at once, Andrew is nearly suffocated by the pulling ropes. He comes to, sputtering and in pain. You gotten pullered on the neck real goods, someone says. It's gonna hurt in a whiles. Misshapen people like Thraxel are taking care of him, though a female almost drowns him in healing water. The other is Sturzet and he's a little more symmetrical and regular-looking, with intelligent yet harried eyes. Sturzet explains that the animals, Bonos, dragged Andrew by the neck for a while before they freed him. At first, Andrew listens to this explanation, but then looks around to see more like Sturzet, all of them systematically dismembering the dead bodies of the pot-bellied aliens, wrapping the pieces in fiber mats, and loading the bloody things onto the pack animals. Andrew's mind goes blank, then he wanders off to vomit. 
Chapter 10. The troop takes off, with Sturzet and Andrew riding two free animals into the night, while the rest trail behind. Sturzet is happy to have an audience, and talks and talks, while Andrew half listens to him and to the mutterings of the others. The murder of the dun-colored creatures haunts his thoughts, but his biggest concern now is, why? This planet doesn't yet make sense to Andrew. There are expressionless creatures like the pot-bellied people, and the other two races he saw on board the duel. And there are the more expressive yet misshapen, troubled people. That female from before, the one who gave Andrew a mystery package, called Thraxel crazy, which means she thinks her people normal. But what constitutes normal and abnormal here? Are these people really monsters? Andrew wonders if he's right in the middle between incurious Fretzy on one end, incomplete, and mumbling Thraxel on the other, overdone. The troop finds their way back to the rundown duel trail Andrew remembered seeing, and it becomes clear that the other caravan of traitors met the same fate as the ones who'd kept Andrew captive. Sturzet's troop now has lots of new straw hats. When the sun comes up, the roasting of meat begins. Sturzet begins to do what Thraxel did try to figure out why Andrew is not quite like him, but not quite like the pot-bellied people. He thinks in these categories, not quite able to think everyone is a unique individual. After all, the smaller people are all the same, though Andrew is pretty sure they can at least tell each other apart, even if Sturzet can't. When Sturzet asks if Andrew will stay with the troop, Andrew says that he has somewhere else to go, taking a note from Fretzi's book and pointing in a random direction. Sturzet laughs. You don't want to go that way, Andrew, he says. That's where them was taking you. With effort, Andrew learns that the little people were taking him to one of their settlements where there aren't any dual worms. It seems most towns have a crazy, and that town doesn't currently. Patiently, Andrew asks Sturzet why Thraxel remains the village idiot when he could leave his hut and join a troop like this one. It's not easy for Sturzet. He's smarter than most of his companions and says that Thraxel is smarter than him. Some of them that's smart don't go away like the rest of us, he says. Guess because they know it don't make any difference, Andrew. Chapter 11 As he travels at night, Andrew wonders about the worm that burst out of the ground and ate his escape capsule. It was different from the train-like dual worms, and he worries that another could pop out of the dirt. Sturzet very much wanted him to stay but kindly provided him with an animal, a hat and mats, rope and poles. He feels good as the sun comes up, shaded and fed, despite the fact that the entire world might look exactly like this. Andrew comes across richer soil in a valley where plant life sticks its head above the surface. The bamboo poles seem to come from similar plants. In fact, the bulb plants seem to grow into bamboo over time in moist soil like this. How frugal! One plant for food, water, timber, and fiber. Over the next few days, Andrew finds more groves like this, though he has to be careful to carry immature bulbs along for water, since the tall, mature plants garner none. The days pass completely uneventfully, save for a rumbling in the planet and a distant dust cloud that soon passes. Andrew doesn't have anything to be really excited about until he spots a proper forest. Chapter 12 more than six meters tall, the bamboo grove is shaded and thick. Andrew finds amusement for himself. He builds a lean-to, he digs a bed, he washes his clothes. He wonders what his old tinkering friend McAllister would do with bamboo like this. The relaxation of his new hobbies gives him time to think about the oddities of this world, 
like the near-complete absence of rock save for the very rare ones used as station markers along the worm groove. Aside from rocks, Andrew misses knives for shaving, toothpaste, toilet paper, writing utensils. Over the course of a week, Andrew watches the bamboo grow quickly. There are more branches and the bases get thicker. Andrew adds tree measuring to his short list of hobbies, along with riding the Bono animal around each morning, and it's on his second day of measuring that he notices the creature watching him from above. Chapter 13 Andrew and the creature stare at each other. Then it's gone. His first reaction is anger. This is my grove. His second is to feel watched, though he's not sure if he actually is. Should he go or stay? He decides to stay, tying together poles into a sort of weapon. He sleeps restlessly, prepared for anything. In the morning, the creature is simply waiting for him outside. Andrew could have laughed. This fellow is a little taller than the pot-bellied people, and thinner, and covered in a layer of downy hair over his grayish skin. His face isn't very expressive, but his eyes seem intelligent. He stands, hands Andrew some bulbs, and sits back down. The stranger wants to know if Andrew is crazy. And Andrew replies that he is not, though he knows what he means. Apparently the pot-bellied people brought a crazy here once, since they are allowed to live near settlements, but the grove people refused. They don't let crazies live here. But Andrew seems alright, especially with his hut at a comfortable distance from the settlement. Soon, the stranger leaves, and Andrew is comfortable with the arrangement. The next day, the furry creature is back, wanting to know about the lemon-shaped thing Andrew was given by that female so many days ago. He has absent-mindedly kept it slung over his shoulder this whole time, then hung it on his hut. So, Andrew describes his adventures until now. He then asks the grove diplomat what the thing is. The creature is genuinely surprised Andrew doesn't know. He leaves and returns with an armful of bulbs. Andrew watches him dig a shallow pit, place the souvenir inside, pour water over it, and press it down with bulb leaves, and cover the whole thing with bamboo. You must do this every five days now, he says. Water and fresh petals. With no explanation, the creature leaves Andrew to it. So, Andrew waters his garden, as instructed, and gets on with his semblance of a routine. He rides the bono, studies the growth patterns of bamboo, brushes his teeth with leaves, and longs for writing materials. Chapter 14 Andrew gets used to his visitor, who is called Ramek. He visits periodically, sometimes skipping visits, and Andrew is disappointed when Ramek doesn't come. Of course, Ramek is still an incurious member of this world, wandering off in the middle of conversations, but Andrew is happy to see a lifted eyebrow or a half-smile now and then. Though probably not as human as Andrew would have liked, he is better company than anyone else so far. Since answering questions, or even asking them, is not a common pastime here, Andrew rations his curiosity, only asking things when he thinks they might be answered. He learns that the bamboo is almost at its tallest, that the stars are not named like people, and Ramek won't bother to answer why he's different from the pot-bellied people. At night, Andrew dreams. Sometimes he sees his old student Melissa in nighttime fantasies. Sometimes he's falling through space, intensely lonely and isolated. The latter follows him into waking. After all that has happened, Andrew is quite surprised when Remick takes him to his place. It is a village of huts made of dried bamboo, spaced far apart from each other, almost impossible to see in the thickness of the grove without stumbling into them. These are very private people, 
silent, and Andrew barely glimpses anyone else. Men and women seem to do about the same work, stripping fibers from the bamboo. Andrew slows when he spots a garden like his, but quickly keeps moving at a glance from Ramek, who'd told him to stay close. They come upon a clearing, and Ramek gives Andrew a small stone hand axe for hacking the bamboo. Huge piles of stocks are being collected by a dozen workers, but Ramek is not ready to tell Andrew what for yet. In hindsight, Andrew knows that Ramek was showing him this for a reason, but at the time, he didn't know what it was. Chapter 15 Andrew wakes before morning to find the Bono nervously shuffling deeper into the grove than usual, generally staying close to the open sands where he can roll and dig. Out on the horizon, Andrew sees that dust cloud again, like a ribbon against the dark sky. He knows without looking that Remick has arrived, and Andrew asks what it is they're seeing. The dust is kicked up by a herd of grolls, which seem to be very big, though Remick knows nothing else since they are always that far away, kicking up dust. Like everything else on this planet, they have their place and stay in it. They sit to watch the grolls pass, and Remick chooses this time to ask where Andrew came from. Trying to keep it simple, sure that an Earth child was better equipped to understand foreigners than anyone here, Andrew explains his crash landing. Ramek takes this in, and it makes sense, since he knew Andrew had to have come from very far away to be so ignorant. Andrew then asks why Ramek is so different from the other types of people he's met. It's like the people here are different species from each other entirely, not just different sorts of people. Though Ramek understands the question, thinking it equally strange that Andrew's people all live together despite differences, he leaves to think and discuss it another day. Much to Andrew's surprise, the Bono animal dies a few days later. Remick's answer as to why suggests it was old age, in some form. With no animal to ride on, Andrew starts stripping bamboo the way he saw others doing, which Remick seems happy about. When he starts trying to build, Remick tells him it's not time yet. Again and again, Andrew feels like a student with a teacher who insists lessons be done through observation with no obvious answers. It leaves Andrew in a bad mood, and he would have liked to find out what was in his garden on a different day. Chapter 16 Ramek and Andrew don't speak of gardening, though Andrew has continued to water the object by his hut. Is it a plant? A deity for guarding the home? It was a mystery, and clearly you weren't supposed to stare at other people's. So, Andrew is horrified when he discovers that the thing he's been feeding and watering has begun to move about inside its sack. Though Ramek is pleased, Andrew is ready to bury the thing. Ramek takes over the process, thoroughly covering the thing in more bulb petals. He says it will take more frequent care now, but Andrew refuses to do anything else until he is told what the thing is and the teacher relents admitting that he did not fully realize the level of Andrew's ignorance until now. The life processes of their two worlds must differ considerably. The thing in the garden is the seed of a new person, Andrew's new person. Though he did not touch the female who gave him the seed, Remick says, There is more to patterning than touching. He seems to be suggesting that the female thinking of Andrew is more important than Fretzi completing the physical act, which appalls Andrew. But Ramek seems satisfied with the lesson for now and leaves. For days, Andrew does little more than think. Is this like those superstitions pregnant women have? Listen to soft music, get a gentle child. Don't look at short people or your baby will be short. 
Read about great men so your baby will be a leader. Ramek doesn't push the point. He comes to care for the garden when Andrew refuses to and is glad to see the progress Andrew has made on his timber pile. They go on another trip to the clearing, where towers of bamboo are being built with brand new huts suspended above the ground. But Andrew still doesn't know what any of it is for. Chapter 17 Ramek takes Andrew outside the grove to where workers are digging deep for pieces of rock that can be made into tools. He shows Andrew the good, strong stone that they need for cutting bamboo. This confirms that only dirt is above and rock is below. When Ramek digs in a muddy area, Andrew is interested in the fossils revealed, though Ramek says it will be good for eating one of these days, which is confusing. Ramek seems happy with Andrew's progress, but the human alien worries that he's given up critical thinking for the luxury of having a conversation partner. A while later, Andrew sees that his harvested bamboo has been taken away for the building project. He ignores Ramek watering the seed in the garden and walks off, wishing he still had a Bono beast so he could ride out of here. Maybe he should just walk away anyway. Eventually. This was not his planet. There would always be questions. He wouldn't grow old in this grove. Andrew keeps his decision in mind while Ramek shows him a hut that has been built for him, and he feels quite pained when he discovers that a walkway of nearly 100 meters has been constructed, leading from his future hut to the main village where Ramek lives. How could these people, even his friend, keep him so segregated? He spends the night looking out at the passing grolls and is startled by not only the first clouds he's seen, but the first drops of rain. Chapter 18 It's a gentle rain, and Andrew is delighted to sleep in his hut listening to it. Unfortunately, there is nowhere for the water to go once it hits the ground, and the hut floods as the rain worsens. He goes to the edge of the grove to look out at the flatlands, which look like an ocean now. The shallow valley is turning into a bowl of water, and water from higher ground would run here too. Suddenly, Andrew realizes what the stilt village construction was all about. With the water level up to his thighs, Andrew makes his way through the grove. Ramek finds him, but sees that Andrew does not have the seed, the new person. Andrew doesn't want to go back, but Ramek pulls himself through the water like a wet cat. Exhausted, the alien finds the drowned hut and insists Andrew hurry. Even after diving for it, Andrew wants to leave this squirming thing behind, but Ramek is insistent. Andrew almost leaves him there, but dives again and picks up the hundred-pound mass. Chapter 19 it's Andrew's turn to be the teacher. Ramek's people know how to prepare for the rains, yet they are not swimmers. Andrew has to pry his friend off a bamboo tree to get him moving now that the water is so high. It's slow going with both the new person and the clingy creature. He nearly loses both several times, fighting with Ramek over whether the new person is worth more than the old person. They can't just huddle in a tree until morning because the water will be above the bamboo by then, so they must go now. Ramek is also flustered from fear and near drowning, saying that the rains came one day early, which has never happened before. Eventually, the stilt hut is in sight, but the storm is raging, and Andrew is weighed down by burdens and an injured ankle. He barely realizes when they make it to safety, and Ramek convinces him to make the agonizing climb up the ladder. Inside the sealed hut, Andrew drifts in and out of consciousness, eventually hearing the scared sounds of some small creature. He wakes fully to the gray light of post-rain to see Ramek caring for the new person, freed from its jelly cocoon. 
Much to his horror, the new person resembles Melissa, the student he has been daydreaming about. Chapter 20 The world is all fog above the water, the walkways disappearing into it. Andrew sits with his legs dangling, in the process of nursing his bad ankle, and watches the chone swim about. They look like platinum crocodiles, or the silverfish bugs back home. Andrew tries to ignore them, since they eat each other, the only available food source. He and the others in the stilt huts will be eating them too, until the flood recedes. These gators were the fossils Andrew had seen unearthed before, revived by the water. Ramek leaves Andrew alone more often now that his initial fever has passed, though Andrew doesn't like being left with the Melissa person. He can't bring himself to think he had anything to do with creating her. She looks just the way his old student did, beautiful and tall and slender and blonde. Quote, The new person, of course, was not Melissa Mills. It had come out of a smelly cocoon in my garden. Before that, from the dun belly of a female commuter. And however implausible it might appear to me, that love-starved ugly had drawn the Melissa dream from the dark and moist regions of my mind and set the image breathing. Unquote. Even more bizarre is the new person's full mind. You are really being an ass about this, Andy. You know that, don't you? Don't call me Andy. I hate that. I've told you about it before. Sure, but you think of yourself as Andy sometimes. I know that because it's in my head, and it wouldn't be there if it wasn't true. Just because something is in one's head doesn't make it true. It does for me. Because it wouldn't be in my head unless it was in yours too. Quit saying that. You don't have the slightest idea what's in my head. We went over that, Andy. Andrew. I'm not reading your mind or anything. It's just there, like a lot of other things. You made the pattern, not me. Don't keep reminding me. If you didn't want me to know things, you shouldn't... What else is in your head? About me? Oh, what's the matter? Afraid I know all your dark, fuzzy secrets? I am not in the least interested, one way or the other. You are, and I don't. Know all about you, I mean. Just some things. Patternings like that. You come into the world with little bits and pieces from the... What's the word? Donor. Mostly, they're not facts at all, just feelings about things. It's the same for everybody on this world. When you get here, you know things. It's there in your head. But you learn things, too. Well, of course. We do it a little differently, to say the least. I know. And that scares me, Andrew. It does? It's something I already knew. You didn't have to tell me. So I guess you gave it to me. A lot of me is you, Andrew. But I was born here. And I can't really imagine that. It frightens me. What? About your world. Being born very small. And helpless. Not knowing anything at all. It scares me to think about that. And so on. This new person who looks like Melissa came from Andrew's mind, and has his intelligence. She's fully aware of the things Andrew imagined doing with the original Melissa, aware that he struggles not to look at her naked body. He is her emotional donor, not her father. She is not human the way he is. This new person points out that the Melissa in Andrew's head was only a fantasy, a creation based on loneliness and a memory. While she is actually standing here in front of him, she's the real one. In the end, Andrew does not break his promise to keep himself separate from this alien who looks and acts like his ideal human woman. She steps over the barrier herself, joining him on his side of the hut one night. The next morning, she announces that she is pregnant. Chapter 21 
human as she looks, the Melissa person has the inner anatomy of her homeworld, where coupling begets pregnancy. She's pleased about it, and Andrew relaxes a little into their strange semblance of a relationship. Within a day, there is a new lemon-like object to care for with Silvergator meat. Like she knew she was pregnant, Melissa knows that this new person will be small, more like a human child. On this world, the differences start right at conception. The cells are deposited into the lemon-sized organ that is released within 24 hours. Then that is wrapped and nourished. It's just that simple. Of course, Andrew isn't satisfied. He has a thousand questions. His biggest question is this. How do you pattern someone without even touching them? In the same way that people on this planet just know things, Melissa knows many things, but not the why. Andrew misses Ramek, but can't visit him. Part of the walkway has been removed. He must stay with Melissa and the seed for the time being, though their conversations always stop at some point. She is a person from here who knows things that just are, but is the product of Andrew's patterning and therefore aware that she is different. After a surprise heavy rain that washes the carcass of an ugly animal nearby, Andrew asks what's troubling Melissa. She asks to know more about the real Melissa so he will love her the same way. Andrew does his best to reassure her that he already does love her, that she is real and not the fantasy. Chapter 22 The gray world around them does not change, but the neighborhood does. One day, while sitting on the walkway, Andrew sees a portion of the distant stilt village crash into the water below. He wonders how long these stilt huts can last in the dampness. On the bright side, Andrew's life with Melissa is truly wonderful. She may have started as a fantasy, but she is her own person, with her own moods, and seems to have chosen him because she wants to. She's far from the submissive toy one might expect out of a fantasy-born person. As the water finally begins to recede, Melissa wants to know what the future holds. She knows Andrew wants to go, but is angry that he doesn't know where or why. On this planet, you go somewhere with a purpose, or you stay put. He points out that there are no set rules, and she shouts back, just because it doesn't mean anything to you doesn't mean it isn't true. You don't know. You don't even belong here. He hugs her as she cries, and he fights tears himself. Andrew begins to understand that there are rules. He has no answers for them, but they exist. People go somewhere because they have a reason. There are places for rocks and places for dirt. Places for fretsy and places for duels. Everyone here is born just knowing. The water level keeps dropping. The sky looks less gray. There are fewer gators, and the new person is getting bigger. Andrew is perplexed by the motherly looks Melissa gives it. Motherhood isn't important on this world. She is defensive about her feelings, since she is happy to care for the child of Andrew Gavin, the man she loves. He's sobered a little by the fact that however this child comes out, like him as a boy, or unbearably ugly, it is due to his patterning. And he admits that humans don't always love their children that their version of patterning is to resent the child for not being the way you want it and force it into the shape you do want. I thought you hadn't had a child before, Melissa says. I haven't. You're talking about somebody, though. You didn't just make that up. Not the way you said it. Andrew doesn't answer. Finally, the water level drops to less than a meter, and Andrew watches the sun set behind beautiful clouds, holding Melissa close. Chapter 23 Andrew and Melissa leave the soggy grove with the growing new person, only to discover that the sun is hot and merciless on her naked skin. By nightfall, Melissa is burned and exhausted beyond the help of bulb water. 
It seems that a terrible summer is upon them. While she sleeps, Andrew curses himself. They are going, but where is there to go? So Andrew digs a burrow and covers it with matting. By daybreak, they have a temporary home where Melissa can recover with the cocoon. He decides they'll stay there a couple days before traveling at night, and he wakes sometimes to see Melissa looking out at the landscape. At dawn, Andrew startles awake to find Melissa huddled in the corner. He almost thinks she's dead, but she eventually answers him with a warning. Go away, Andrew. Melissa, it's the child, isn't it? He says. Something's wrong. What's wrong with the child, Melissa? Quote, The eyes, so wide do they fill her face. No gentle curves there now. Harsh planes and angles. No gentleness in the voice, either. Unquote. You are what is wrong, Andrew, she says. Don't you know that? You don't belong here. This is my world, not yours. Oh, God, Andrew. Chapter 24 Quote, I was moving in the proper direction, doing what I was supposed to do. I have always done what I was supposed to do, and listened to what they said. So why was the sun going away up into the sky? I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't mean to. Don't go away and leave me. You're a bastard, son. I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to use words like that. I didn't mean to use a bad word, but you shouldn't leave me. You're a big bastard, son. The little bastard's no son of mine. Hush, Charlie. He'll hear you. Well, goddamn, Ellen, look at him. That all he knows how to do, cram his nose in a book. A kid needs to get out and mix it up. Take some knocks. Just because Andrew's not athletically inclined... Athletically inclined might butt, and his name's Andy, for God's sake. Andrew, Jesus, no wonder he's a skinny-ass little... Charlie! Okay, but if he's not, he will be. If you don't straighten him out and quit babying him... He makes good grades? He makes good grades... Christ, grades don't mean shit. No girl wants to go out. For the team, Andy, you give any more thought to that? Not a lot, Dad. Anyway, I'm not the right size for it. A lot of the guys... Hell with the other guys, Andy. You've got good build, remember? You used to lay some damn good blocks on me, son. Knocked the wind out of my sails a couple of times, right? Dad, that was playing around in the backyard. It's not like... It's the same damn thing. It's conditioning. Getting in shape for what's out there in the world. Andy, what was it all for? I tried to... Teach? What kind of job is that? It's what I want to do, Dad. Well, where is it going to get you? You know what teaching's for. All right, what's it for? For do-nothings who can't do anything else. What happened, Andy? What was it all for? Christ, Charlie Gavins. Son, a white blaze high in the sky, too high. How am I ever going to reach you, Dad, if you keep getting higher and higher and... Here, you drink, Andrew. Don't call me Andrew. It's Andy. I don't like to be called Andrew because... Yes, Andy. Drink. You have much sickness from the sun. Am I your son? I want to be, but you go so high, so... Drink, Andy. Dad? It is Ramek, Andrew. Andy! Yes, Andy. Ramek? Yes. You don't look like Ramek. You look like him. I am not the same as I was, but I am Ramek. Ramek doesn't come to see me anymore. I guess I didn't do things like he wanted me to. I tried to, but... Dad, it's dark out. Where's my son? I want my son. Melissa! She is here. Rest, Andrew. Oh, God, my son. Melissa, I didn't mean to do that. You can't make anyone be something they don't want to be. You can't... you can't just... Can't you do something, Ramek? He will be all right. He needs rest. And water. He looks... awful. Another night. Here in the burrow, out of the sun. Ramek? Yes. Andrew changed you. 
Yes. You let him do that. Andrew did not know this. It was a need in him, as you were a need, and the new person. Oh, Ramek, please, will you take the child? It is his patterning, Andrew's. But he doesn't want it, Ramek. No, but I think he will. After what he's... Understanding will come of what he has done. This world of his, I do not think it is like our world. I think it is a strange and frightening place. The child looks like him. Yes, I think the child is Andrew, and Andrew is the child. Melissa, you want the new person, do you not? Yes. Oh, yes. It's his, Ramek. I have to want it. Strange indeed. Small new persons, and females who would remain with their offspring. Ramek, what's to become of us? I'm frightened, I... Andrew wants to be somewhere, and I don't understand this. A place is a place, but Andrew... This is not in my understanding either, but it is the way of his world, I think. But all the world is just... the world. It's not right, Ramek. We can't just keep... going. Andrew will know, I think. Know what? When he finds what he is looking for. But what is there to find? Andrew and Melissa journey until they come to a brown, tideless sea that looks to Melissa like the edge of the world. They speak to each other very little anymore. She is constantly frightened by his desire to travel and search for something that even he can't understand. Why take a boat out to the sea? Why go north? While Melissa sleeps, Andrew cares for the strange child. Their son looks like him as a toddler, but has a bizarre bony head and a furry chest. It's as if he's wearing a bright red football helmet and a yellow jersey, complete with the number 22 on his chest. Andrew wants to strangle the child and bury it, but he refuses to be like his own father, who wanted his son to be what he wanted him to be. This child can be whatever it is. The next night, Andrew steals a boat, something like a canoe. They travel across the impossibly still sea, and Melissa apologizes for saying he doesn't belong here. The truth is that she only half belongs here herself. He longs to hold her again, to be close like they were before things got hard, but they are distracted by the many boats leaving the shore in the dawn light, heading straight for them. Chapter 25 The other boats stop, seemingly a warning to move on. So they do. They burrow in the shore when the sun is high, they bathe in the brown sea, Andrew rows them along the shore. Sometimes he climbs to slightly higher places to see the dual worms far away making their way across the landscape. Strangely, they come across no sea life at all, no fish or shells. Then again, there are no birds, insects, or other small animals. The couple manages to feel a little closer to one another one day in their burrow, when Melissa apologizes for not trusting him more, and Andrew assuring her that her desire to understand him is all he can ask of her love. Although Andrew thinks she is very different from everyone here, born here but different, she admits that there are things she feels that she knows he does not. I don't know why the Grolls roam forever on the flatlands, she says, but I feel them doing this and it feels right. And sometimes I think I can feel the whole world breathe, Andrew. I'm part of that breathing, and sometimes I don't want to be. Sometimes it scares me terribly. There are many things still not said, not explainable, as they continue on. Andrew climbs a dune for a look at the curve of the sea and the land beyond, and witnesses a local scuffle. Dark brown, almost purple, people dig for bulbs, then are come upon and attacked by others, leaving them dead before returning to a muddy settlement up ahead. Chapter 26 Rather than turn back, as Andrew and Melissa know they could do, 
Andrew waits for deep darkness to push off into the sea to pass the settlement by cover of night. They paddle past the settlements when suddenly this child wakes from a nightmare to cry loudly. Andrew frantically paddles farther out to sea in the hopes of not being heard, but to no avail. The locals appear on the shore and Melissa panics, tipping them out of the boat. Since the water is so shallow, they're able to wade out onto the beach and Andrew uses the canoe as a weapon. As the family runs up a dune, Andrew knocks out a few more with splintered poles from the boat. He's never hit anyone before in his life and is satisfied with each one he knocks back. They swing their clubs over their heads without much creativity and aren't sure what to do about the strange man-beast who swipes at them horizontally. After a while, they figure out that they must gang up on him, but they are still surprised by Andrew's larger weapon and louder roar. Eventually, however, Andrew gets hit hard and falls, beaten to unconsciousness. He wakes up to see that the other settlement must have heard the noise, and the family is surrounded by the locals fighting each other. Chapter 27 Though Melissa is proud of him and the child is asleep, Andrew has to figure out what to do. Once the battle behind them was done, surely the locals would come after them. What else did they have to do, no matter how far they ran? Andrew looks all around until he spots a small string of islands out at sea. The violent ones didn't have boats, so they should be safe out there for a while. Melissa trembles and refuses to go. This is not a good place. I can't go out there. After some back and forth, Andrew picks up both the child and her. He carries her away despite her wailing, because whatever it is that she thinks is bad here, it can't be worse than what the violent people will do when they catch up. Soon the army is upon them, and Andrew is forced to put Melissa down. He thinks they will have to split up. He fights, she runs, but the locals stop in their tracks before turning and going back the other way. He turns to see that his old friend Sturzit, the crazy, has arrived with his troop of animals, much to Melissa's horror and Andrew's delight. The reunion is happy for Andrew, though Melissa refuses to have anything to do with the troop. Sturzit laughs about the violent people here who fight over bulbs, which don't grow well by the sea. When Andrew asks why the two settlements don't just leave and walk half a day away for better ground, Sturzit frowns. Andrew, they's not doing that. They's living here. Always being in this place. Why they go another place? Andrew drops the subject and looks out at the scenery, commenting on the islands. Islands is pretty? Sturzet asks. Ugly's better. Them's not good places, Andrew. You know that? Again, Andrew is reminded that somehow everyone knows so much, except him. Chapter 28 Checking in on Melissa and the baby, Andrew wants to know why Melissa doesn't like the islands, but she's quiet in the way she is when there's something she doesn't want to talk about. How does Sturzit know? She shoots back. Ask him, Andrew. She calms down, and they are back to the previous conversation about how there are things she feels without being able to explain them. Melissa's dislike of Sturzit's group might be like that too. And in the same way Andrew can't understand her inherent dislike for things or places, she can't understand his want to see the islands or search for something unknown. Andrew is now convinced he wants to visit the islands, and Melissa insists she's staying right here. In the end, Andrew convinces her that she's better off with him than the crazies. They each have a bono to ride, and the water only reaches the animals' knees as they explore the sandpile islands. Melissa continues to be incredibly scared after seven islands, but can't explain why, and Andrew can't bring himself to stop until they've reached the end of the line. Finally, she refuses to go any further. 
Andrew goes on ahead until he's seen close to 40 islands that are all the same, traveling five days alone. His Bono begins to get nervous and bolts one night. For the first time since landing on this planet, Andrew feels truly fearful of something he can't see but is sure is there. Chapter 29 Island 44, or perhaps 54, five days after the Bono ran off. Andrew, the economy teacher, is losing track of islands and days, hallucinating sounds, recalling things that didn't happen to him. Sometimes his head is full of nice things, love-making, thirst-quenching, and others it's full of horrors, death, pain. His nightmares are full of loneliness and the passing of ages. Does he understand a micro-microsecond or the length of a billion years? Andrew can't see the shore anymore. He can't remember which direction in the line of islands he came from. Is he looking for something, or is something looking for him? On the final island, perhaps over a hundred since he started, he hears bees on a world without insects. I guess I'm asleep. Peculiar thing to say, Gavin. You're asleep or you aren't. If you're asleep, close your eyes. Can't look up and see the stars with my eyes closed. Sometimes you can. What? Sometimes you can see them better that way. Melissa? No, Andrew. Listen, what the hell are you doing out here? You're supposed to be on Island 7, or 9, somewhere. Not Melissa, Andrew. I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. Don't think. Just be. Just bees. Think about bees, then. There aren't any bees. Imagine there are. Yes. You like the humming. Yes. I can use that, if it makes it easier. Better? Better. You understand now, Andrew? Yes, only... Oh, it's you, isn't it? You know me now. I know something. Just be. I know you had to be here. Somewhere. Yes? It was you I was looking for then, not a place. You were looking for answers. You could have made it easier. No. You could have brought me here in the first place. I didn't bring you here at all, Andrew. I can't do that. You brought yourself. You're the one who dreams about being lonely and old. No. It was about me. But you dreamed, Andrew. I gave up dreaming. It didn't help. No. No, I guess it didn't. It's bad enough remembering. You can stop the dreams, but you can't stop the remembering. Don't. You're doing the thing with the years again. I can't handle that. I forget that we're not the same. We're not. But I understand. Some, anyway. About you and about me. Yes? You're here. Close to here. Past the island? Not far. Under the sea. Under the sea, and under that. It's the place I think most about being, if I can be in a place. It's a strong place for me. The capsule fell there. Only not a capsule. You see that, then? I thought it was my capsule, in the dream. It wasn't, though. No, it was mine, Andrew. It fell here. But there was no sea, then. There wasn't much of anything. Wait. Wait now. You see the rest of it. I don't know what I see. Don't think. Just be. Good God! You see it. It was you, wasn't it? They're like they are because of you. There's more to it than that. Is there? I thought you'd understand, Andrew. We're alike in that way. No. No, we're not. We are. Would you create a world like this? What for? So there'd never be anyone to talk to? You made them that way. They made themselves that way. All right, because of me. But there's a difference. I didn't ask to come here. No more than you. 
but we are here. Come on, Andrew. Don't talk to me about responsibility. I've had plenty of time to work on that one. I landed. I was alive. I chose to stay alive. What happened, happened. Because of you. Things have happened here because of you too, Andrew. Could you stop them from happening? Look. The child. You son of a bitch. It was your presence. Blame me, then, for being alive. I don't blame you for being alive. That's not it. Hypothetical question. If your breath poisoned the atmosphere of this planet... All right. Your point, maybe. I could kill myself for the sake of the planet. I can't say what I'd do. I think I would. I hope I would. Obviously, you didn't. You think I knew what I was doing here? Didn't you? How could you not know? You don't sense what I am. Some. It's not clear. I'm in my natural environment, if you can call it that, on this sand pile. That's like saying your normal elements a city of a million people. Only, there's no one else around. The city's there, but it's empty. You're saying you're alone. And you're showing me the years again. Don't. No, I'm not. You're just seeing more. Sensing me better. Some. Not much. I don't expect much now. But it's important that you understand, Andrew. What I am has everything to do with what happened here. I'd like someone to see that. I'm trying. You can see something. Something? You? Or a lot of yous? No, just me. Wiggly lines. Patterns. It's an abstraction. The thought of a mind body. Like a... What? Network? I'm picking the word image from you. Roots. Capillaries. Even better. You, Andrew. Strip away the bone, flesh, and muscle, and leave the circulatory and nervous systems. Multiply the size of that a hundred thousand times, and you have me. Only it's not the same. The analogy's limited. Yes, I know that. I see something dark and cool under the earth. Right. Deep enough to find the cool places. Not too deep to feel the sun, though. You'd see us. How? A multiple network of life? Your words, not mine. It's hard. You're doing something with... Music? Not Only not music. Good. You understand that. How the notes and chords are different. They come together to be something else when they want to. Yes. You can be what you like on my world, too. But you're never alone. Not unless you want to be. There's always sharing and knowing, and half a billion lives to touch. Maybe we had bodies once. But if we did, we put them aside a long time ago. We took to the earth instead, and wove a life fabric there and learned as we grew. We put mind things and real things together when we wanted to, and finally we sent little pieces of ourselves out to the stars. Male and female pieces, Andrew. Though that's not the same either. We wanted to bring other worlds alive. Only we never took a world where something else had a beginning. Not deliberately. All right, but there was life here, and something happened to it. Yes, I happened to it. But I couldn't know that. It was a young world, and there was life, or the beginnings of it, anyway. I didn't bother it. I burrowed into the earth and grew. And if the other piece of me had survived, we would have multiplied, and I wouldn't have covered the world alone. It didn't, though. And the life that had started here? Like the beginnings of life everywhere. Trial and error. One proto-creature, and then another. Only it was a long and agonizing process here. It didn't make sense to me. They broke all the rules, and I couldn't understand that. The active, curious species couldn't adapt. Cunning and intelligence were handicaps. And if you had anything going for you at all, you disappeared rather quickly. It was survival of the fittest in reverse, Andrew. 
When the winner finally appeared, it was the most unlikely candidate in the race. Uh-huh. Our dun-colored friends. Of course. And I couldn't imagine why the dull had inherited the Earth. I thought, maybe this is a beginning. A prototype. Since it survived, maybe it'll grow and develop into something else. Only it didn't. Not at all. Oh, a few individuals showed promise, but the group found them out quickly enough. You saw that, but you didn't do anything. I knew what had happened, yes, but it was too late then. Was it? Andrew, why don't you just ask me? Why didn't I destroy myself then and give them a chance? All right, why didn't you? Because it wouldn't have made any difference. Besides... It might have. Besides, you don't know what I am. Not really. Suicide isn't that easy for us. I could have done it when the capsule fell, when there was no more of me than there is of you. After I grew, I was incapable of that. Why? It's a matter of complexity. Physical or philosophical? You're quick to judge, Andrew. Are you confident you have the knowledge to do this? No. I know I don't. But you found me guilty. I can't find you guilty. Maybe it sounded like that. It wasn't supposed to. It's just that I can't understand what's happened here. How a whole world went down the drain. I haven't denied the responsibility for that, have I? It went down the drain because my presence was the survival factor on this world. And it was a factor that didn't work for the strong. The fit couldn't survive. I didn't have to interfere. I was here. How, though? If you weren't aware... What I am and how I am is a beautiful thing on my world. It links all our lives together. It lets us know and be one another. Remember the bees? That's the sound of life, Andrew. Not on this world, it isn't. No, not on this world. And you are talking to me now, with this humming. Yes. Telepathy? ESP? No, it's like an electrical current, and I'm the wiring. My body that's webbed beneath the earth. That's why it isn't telepathy. If you weren't within range of where I am, you couldn't hear me. Only that's not what you're doing. A radio you can't turn off. Yes, like that. Only not quite. I don't send like a radio. I don't because I don't have anyone to talk to here. I'm a transmitter, but I don't transmit. Good God. You see what happened here? They do the transmitting, Andrew, not me. I make it possible, of course. I'm a vast auxiliary nervous system that links every creature here to every other. An individual with strong drives or emotions touches everyone around him. That's why strength and intelligence got you stoned out of the tribe here from the very beginning. Dominant individuals affected the group's behavior. The group sensed this danger, though they couldn't know where the trouble was coming from. Only that once a certain individual was out of the way, the trouble stopped. Isolation and conformity became survival tactics. A placid mental profile and ritual life patterns. That's why they kicked me out of the settlement. Yes, your emotions were disturbing. You didn't know how to non-think. But isolation, you said. They live with each other. They know how to turn it off. You don't. And there's something else. The settlements are always in areas where my... roots aren't overly extensive. They instinctively pick spots like that. The crazies. Stirs it and his bunch. Poor Thraxel. The creatures on this world have developed an instinctive dampening factor, Andrew. You've seen it. Mental withdrawal. They turn off something in their heads so that they won't be vulnerable to each other. It may even be a genetic factor now. I don't know. But Sturzet and Thraxel don't have it. So they get the best and the worst of everything. Awareness and intelligence that can't handle. And every stray emotion that comes down the pike. Christ. Sad, Andrew. 
because they're the only hope here, and no real hope at all. They can't stabilize themselves mentally or physically because they don't have the dampening factor. And if they had the dampening factor, they wouldn't be what they are. The mental thing I can understand. Some of it, but the physical. Thoughts did that to Sturzet and Thraxel? You made Melissa and your son unconscious acts, but the manifestation of strong emotions, Andrew. Do you wonder that the creatures here stopped thinking? Can you imagine what kind of chaotic world this would be? You're relatively unaffected by anything transmitted on this planet. That's because you weren't born repressing your emotions. If anything, you use the transmitter and magnify your will. But Sturzet and Thraxel are vulnerable to every small fear that leaks from the racial unconscious. The unconscious makes monsters, then. I have to believe that. I made one myself. Didn't you know the unconscious was a physical force, Andrew? Look at the world around you. What? What about the world? It's their world. The way they want it. Or the way their unconscious told them they wanted it. It's never been much. It didn't have a chance to get started because they held it down to size. No. No, I can't believe that. Thraxel and stirs it. But a whole world? Why not? Lowest common denominator, Andrew. Mountains and trees and magnificent scenery are distracting. Disturbing to non-thought. But, my god! It didn't happen overnight. They simply wore it away. What there was of it. Along with birds or insects or anything too small to stand up under the racial drive for simplicity. That's the key word here, Andrew. The food and water bulbs. An unconscious agricultural project nearly a hundred million years old. The not uncontroversial answer to nourishment. A hundred million years... It's an old world, and nothing happens very quickly here. How long since your species emerged? Two million years? Three million? Everything here has been much the same as you see it now for more than 400 million years. The Dun creatures developed about then, or a little later. Any other race in that time... Would have conquered the stars, I know. I'm afraid there'll be no star conquerors here. Well, they built the Elementary Express. That's something. Yes, and it only took 300,000 years, Andrew, for that idea to develop. It comes as close to a complexity as you'll find here. It's a plain and artless world, and everything upon it is designed to fit the basic pattern of simplicity. A language everyone understands. That's a side effect of my transmission capabilities, and the unconscious will towards sameness. The bamboo flood cycle of Ramek's village, the life-death pattern of the Silver Gators, the weather, the march of the Grolls, and even the pattern of violence in the killers that attacked you and Melissa, Andrew. Violence isn't the norm here, but it is with them. They were hunters, once. An unusual and progressive strain. But the game they hunted is gone, and it's been gone three million years or so. But the pattern hasn't changed. To change is to become vulnerable. So they hunt each other now. For them, violence is safety, conformity to the pattern. A deviation from that would endanger the sanity of the group. We could have been marooned on better worlds. That thought has occurred to me, Andrew. Ramek. Ramek was not the same as the others. He means much to you. He does. He did a great deal for me. Things I understand and things I don't. Yes. I did something to him. I don't know. Melissa knows, but I wouldn't ask her. When you were sick. After the child. Yes. And Ramek. Was that part of the sickness? Ramek. My father was mixed up in all that, and I thought... Yes. You changed him, Andrew. But he let that happen. Don't you know that? Why? Because you changed him in other ways, too. He saw a need in you and accepted it. He knew what would happen. 
but Ramek's the most unusual creature. Not just because he responded to you, but because of what he is. Maybe there's some hope for us yet. He stopped coming after that. Yes. Because of what I was doing to him. Because he didn't want you to know what you were doing to him. Oh. And because he couldn't keep coming. If he had... You're the most dangerous beast on this planet, Andrew. Don't you know that? Nothing like your will has ever shown itself here. Melissa, your creation of fantasy. The birth of my son. Yes. Dangerous beast. You hit it all right. Does your son sadden you that much? You've seen what he's like. My father's goddamn ambitions. Working through me. Andrew, you changed, Remick. So? No, wait. You have the power. You just have to learn how to use it. Christ, I wouldn't dare. I botched the job once. Unconsciously. Do you really think you'd do that again? Yes? No? I don't know. It's already begun, Andrew. You started to change him as soon as he was born. Maybe you shouldn't have told me that. Maybe I'll... What, Andrew? Nothing. Funny, isn't it? We can make people to order. Just one thing we can't make here. Yes, there is one thing. Your race built ships to take you to the stars. My race, Andrew. Not one individual. We're alike in that. It's a thing for the flow of many minds. I'm woven about this world, but I am still alone. I didn't think. You've had the time. If you could have built a ship, you would have. Yes, and sent at least a small piece of me away from this place. It's just... I can't get used to the idea of spending the rest of my life here. Maybe my years aren't a spit in the ocean to yours, but they'll sure as hell seem as long. It doesn't have to be that bad. No? There are things I can do, Andrew. I said that I never willingly influenced the lives of these creatures, but I cheated a little with their world. It was a small luxury, and it did no harm. While there were still trees and grasses, and I could see what was going to happen here, I decided that I would not let it all disappear. I saved a place. It was a strong place for me, as this is. To the south of here, quite far. But it's green with plants and trees nearly as old as the world. I'd like that. Very much. You'll need a boat. Melissa will kill me. She'll be happy when she gets there. She will. I will too. Only... Yes, I know. I don't think I could do that. Just... stop thinking. Did you? Did you ever give up? And all that time? No. I've never stopped thinking, Andrew. Huh. There's a bizarre thought. What do you suppose Melissa would say if I got her pregnant with a spaceship? If my unconscious wanted one badly enough? Andrew, you are a dangerous beast indeed. He's right. I am. As all men are, wherever they go. For their nature is to change things. They are not content with their lot, and yearn for other places. The beast has not broken out of his cage. He lives with his woman and his child in the shade of green ferns and mosses as old as the world, and he is not unhappy. But he has not stopped thinking, either. It's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? I would hazard a guess that Josh Kirby read three to four chapters, then perhaps stopped. Though, even if he did read the whole book, I'm not sure what else he could have painted. Without major spoilers, Andrew Gavin's first look at the dual worm while standing with the pot-bellied aliens after digging up water bulbs is probably the most, uh, iconic scene in the story. 
if anything, Kirby leaned into the ridiculousness of this scene. The duel looks positively phallic, <laughs> with the pink sky and the yellow aliens and the bulbs. Oh, and I didn't notice this before. Kirby actually included those piled stones that mark where the aliens wait for the train, significant on a world where all rock is deeply buried. As for the main character, I never figured out exactly how old Andrew is supposed to be, and I expect Kirby had the same problem. The man on the cover looks pretty young and fit, and is dressed in a cool, stripy, futuristic spaceman outfit, complete with a pointy hat. Andrew reads uh, a lot more like a man in his 40s, <laughs> wearing a basic shirt and trousers that are never described any more than that. Oh, and Kirby made one real mistake, and that's which alien is wearing a hat. <laughs> in the book, Fretzy is wearing one, not the female, but that's... who cares. What a short book! I finished that summary in no time. It was so quick that I wasn't sure I had enough to say about it right away, so I moved on to working on another script. And now I'm back. The back cover promises that this is a book I won't forget in a hurry, but I have to admit I haven't lost any sleep over it. <laughs> I can appreciate what Barrett was doing, writing something that both references and parodies old sci-fi works like John Carter of Mars, where the single human on the planet ends up there through mysterious means, is stronger than the natives, and conveniently finds himself a human girlfriend. But I also can't say that he pushed far enough. Yes, the world he created is purposefully stomach-churning and boring as opposed to the heart-pounding adventures of Mars, but it's still a pulpy fish-out-of-water read. Nothing really new comes out of it until the very end. For example, instead of godlike sandworms akin to Frank Herbert's Dune, written ten years earlier, there are icky duel trains. Instead of grand fighting monsters, there are short, pot-bellied people in the nude. Even the grand revelation at the end of the book, that this world limps along in large part thanks to the telepathic entity buried in the dirt, seems more like a reference to the living planet of 1961's Solaris than a really unique idea. Even the cover preview, Stranger in the Strangest Land, admits it, playing with the title of Robert A. Heinlein's famous novel, which came out the same year as Solaris. Not every idea has to be completely unique. I did really enjoy some of the writing. I'm just calling it out as a novel dedicated to parody and homage. Let me quickly say that I don't know that much about Neil Barrett Jr., even after reading through his Wikipedia page and skimming some other websites. I don't know if he consciously or unconsciously created alien creatures that sometimes resemble starving children or stereotypical African pygmies. Seems rather rude, since the book suggests that this state of being is barely worth living, as if an ancient homegrown society of plentiful food and housing has nothing at all going for it. Makes me want to rewatch The Gods Must Be Crazy so I can see Key make the wise choice to turn away from civilization and go home to a simple, natural life with his family. It didn't escape my notice that the most violent tribes of aliens in stress pattern were also the darkest skinned. Maybe this is meant to be parody, so silly you can't help but question your biases? I'm not sure. Then again, maybe Barrett was aware of all this. For example, the misshapen characters like Thraxel, the one whose intellect is a little closer to the human main characters, have speech patterns that might be trying to imitate some sort of urban, almost African-American vernacular English? Total speculation there. That's just how it sounded to me when I attempted to read how Barrett wrote their speech. What with Andrew not being allowed to board the worm train and non-conforming characters being forced to live on the outskirts of society as hermits or vagabonds, it's possible Barrett was going for layers of commentary about racism, or at least xenophobia, but I I'm really not sure. 
all I can say for sure is that, like Pierce Anthony, Barrett tried to explore new and varied psychology through his work while still falling into pitfalls, such as sexism and male fantasy. To quote sfencyclopedia.com, he was deeply American in his rage and his joy. <laughs> he was, after all, a white Texan aged 45 when Stress Pattern was published in 1974. Like I said earlier, I think Andrew is meant to be about the same age. If I had to draw a picture of what I thought Andrew looked like, it would resemble the photos I've seen of Barrett. Perhaps he was at an age where he wanted a little fantasy, to live a little vicariously. At the same time, he wanted to write about a man left vulnerable on an alien world, dealing with residual damage from his father's expectations and trying to be strong for the woman he loves. He's definitely trying to say something powerful about generational trauma. Don't get me wrong. This story is not Life of Pi in its level of solitude and struggle, but Barrett tried to imagine a human man set adrift, one who didn't know how he got there, one plagued by memories of family, one confronted with his innermost thoughts and desires. Everything is different from how he's used to it being, sort of like a reverse of the world from Frederick Pohl's The Age of the Pussyfoot. See episode 9 from season 1. There is no money, food is plentiful, yet company, conversation, and morality are entirely lacking. Andrew is driven by nothing more than his own need for... something. Anything. Perhaps that was why he was in space at all, since it's never explained where an economics teacher is going that he might end up jettisoned to the nearest planet. Part of the back cover summary says this. Ride the worm way to no wonderland. The essence of a truly null earth logic may never be as clearly defined as in this novel-length package of interplanetary surprises. Hmm. Null earth. As far as I can tell, that term comes from A.E. Van Vogt's The World of Null A, written in 1945. I've read Van Vogt's Voyage of the Space Beagle, season 1, episode 6, but only a few pages of Null A. Taking a quick look at the Wikipedia summary, I can't help but laugh. <laughs> it's basically the opposite of stress pattern. A man living in an apparent utopia where those with superior understanding and mental control rule the rest of humanity wants to be tested by the giant machine that determines such superiority. Ha! If that's what Van Vogt wrote about, then Barrett's version was... A man lands in an apparent wasteland where those with no curiosity or drive live in separate groups, and he wants to speak to the entity in charge. The term null A seems to be short for non-Aristotelian logic, meaning an alternative or non-classical system of logic that can be scientific, philosophical, quantum, and so on. I guess here it means that the planet in stress pattern works on its own system of logic. The unnamed planet Andrew lands on is very old, and has had intelligent life on it for a very long time. However, the path to life and survival here is complacency, not competition between the fittest. Exactly the opposite of what John Carter finds on Mars. An interplanetary entity arrived here in the hopes of coaxing life along, only to find itself utterly alone on a world that thrives on boredom. It resembles Ego the Living Planet from the Marvel comic universe, who appeared in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, or the sentient ocean on Solaris from the book by Stannis Lalum. It seems to be somewhat plant-based, since I think it is the origin of the water bulb plants that can be found buried just underneath the surface anywhere in the world, which explains how it is now too vast to kill since parts of it can be cut off or destroyed without ridding the world of the whole entity. In that way, it's a lot like the bamboo in Sue Burke's Semiosis. It is telepathic, so it can interact with the people who live there, 
yet they rely on non-think to thrive. Thoughts breed misshapen people who are more aware while still falling into a sort of numb rhythm to survive, being the main meat-eaters we see. It's not clear how so many intelligent species evolved on this world, but staying in their lane is baked into their genetic wiring. Each is suited for only one version of life. It kind of reminds me of Charles Darwin's work studying finches in the Galapagos, noting how each was subtly different and best suited to a very specific geographical area. The fact that conception happens only partly through intercourse is further proof of that. To have uncontrolled thoughts is to risk creating a bad pattern. All the crazies like Thraxel and Sturzet seem to be the result of this. After millions of years of this, the network entity's thoughts seem dulled, so that it seems on par with Andrew in terms of wit and conversation, despite being so old. So, what is this patterning business? I'd be lying if I said I fully understood it, but even Andrew doesn't really get it. Heck, the worldwide telepathic entity doesn't seem to really get it either. It's something that developed when early life started relying too heavily on the psychic grid. Even if it is the source of understanding, the way some things are just known and everyone can understand each other's words, this planet took it all to the extreme. This is understanding each other's sameness, not understanding new thoughts. There are no children because each new person is born big enough, already knowing what they need to, plugged into the network by proximity and patterning. I don't know exactly how patterning works when it comes to inspiring the birth of a new person, but Andrew's unusually potent emotions seem to have quite an effect on nearby females. That seems to be a reason to keep him segregated from Ramek's tribe, as well as why he shouldn't even look at a growing new person seed. The implication is that Andrew, a human, has a greater sense of will than anything that has set foot on this planet since the network entity arrived. He projects a pattern that creates a new person within moments of being near other people. We don't really get an answer regarding the change that comes over Ramek, but it seems like Andrew's need for a good mentor and a father figure may have had something to do with it. It's implied that Ramek no longer looks like himself, that Andrew's imagination has such an effect on this world that it changed how an existing person looks, even changed the weather patterns slightly. And the network entity believes his force of will could change something that's been inherent throughout history, as well as the catalyst for a more interesting, flexible future. Unfortunately, this means that Andrew falls into a common trope. Normal dude is extraordinary amongst the natives. It's like the male Cinderella. <laughs> I don't necessarily mean in the way of The Last Samurai or Dances with Wolves, or other stories where the protagonist is somehow unusual or a badass in his own right, and therefore is well-suited to being another group's champion. With sci-fi, the main dude is usually extraordinary anyway. It's part of the power fantasy. Mad Max Fury Road, Tron, Blade Runner, Avatar, Interstellar, Dune... These all have a male main character who's pretty damn awesome, trained fighting machines, even if they're young or retired. I'm thinking more along the lines of Planet of the Apes, Edge of Tomorrow, Stargate, or The Matrix. Even My Stepmother is an Alien, wherein the main character has the potential to be really great, if only placed in the right situation with the right guidance. Comparing Stress Pattern to the John Carter of Mars books again, simply being human has its advantages in this new world. Although, I can't help but wonder if Andrew has any bacteria or diseases that would ravish a boring, peaceful planet like this. Is this a Pocahontas story? His carried diseases infect the native peoples? Or a War of the Worlds story? The native diseases conquer him. 
If Andrew was simply the Neo of this story, that would be fine. If it was just that Andrew is a human and that fact alone is special, I would leave it alone. But the problem is that within the Venn diagram of categories and tropes, Andrew falls into another. The born sexy yesterday trope, as coined by the pop culture detective on YouTube. I don't mean that Andrew is considered sexy. <laughs> Rather, his love interest is sexy and literally born yesterday. You could also reference the ancient dragon lady trope in anime, although that's usually flipped around so that an adult woman looks like a teen or a child. Basically, there are a lot of fantasy sci-fi movies that feature love interests, almost always female, who have only recently entered the world after birth, isolation, etc. Think Lilu from The Fifth Element, Celeste from My Stepmother is an Alien, and other women from some of the movies I've already listed. One way or another, they are ignorant of love and men, and possibly the whole world, yet they are adults. The men in their lives are their teachers, father figures, friends, lovers. Ugh, I knew I would be writing this portion of the episode almost from the moment I read the back cover of Stress Pattern, which features the line, He fathers a child without ever touching the mother. It's when he does physically create his true offspring that he gets his most startling surprise. As I read, I had a feeling that whatever the lemon seed thing the female alien gave him turned out to be, Andrew would probably take it as a sexual partner at some point. I just knew it. This part of the story reminds me of George R.R. R. Martin's 1985 story, Portraits of His Children, in which an aging writer named Richard receives paintings from his estranged daughter. If you might be interested in reading this short story, you might want to pause or skip ahead a minute since I'm going to spoil it here. And for anyone who might be triggered by references to assault, please proceed with caution. At first, Richard thinks this is Michelle's way of apologizing, expecting a replacement portrait of herself after she ripped up the old one. But that isn't the case. Each portrait that appears on his doorstep is a detailed portrayal of a character from one of his novels, his real children. And at night, those portraits come to life. Richard is forced to face the creations of his mind, a part of him in a way his own flesh and blood daughter is not. The first is a bad-mouthed street kid from Richard's debut novel, the sort of boy he wished he was when he was really just a nerd. The second is a deliciously sexy 18-year-old woman, the sort of partner he always desired, especially in the midst of marital collapse. And the third is a newspaper man who is as old as Richard is now, from the book Richard is most proud of, yet didn't sell well. He has deep conversations or revelations with each of these characters who come to life, and he has to reflect on the life he's barely led while giving his heart and soul to writing. By the end, Richard knows what the final portrait will be. He's written nine books. The street kid was from the first, the sexy woman was from the fourth, and the newspaper man was from the eighth, leaving only the ninth and final novel. Richard is not good at being accountable for his actions, but realizes he can't run away from this any longer. Flashbacks reveal that his daughter Michelle was brutally tortured and assaulted two years ago, and she was able to confide in her father about what happened in a way she couldn't with anyone else. Unfortunately, the story she told stuck in his mind, and Richard wrote a novel based on her horrible experience. That led to their big fight. He's certain that Michelle is sending him these living portraits to make him face what he is, a loner, a nerd, a bad husband, a writer who can't remember his daughter's birthday, and punish him for making Michelle relive the worst night of her life, as well as sharing details of it with millions of readers after the book becomes a number one bestseller. 
Surely the final portrait will be the rapist, and Richard will be tormented the way Michelle was. However, the final portrait is of Nicole, the stand-in character for Michelle. It turns out that of all the characters Richard wrote, the most real and human ones were what Michelle painted, and that includes this version of his daughter, not the faceless tormentor who represents fear itself. All this time, Richard thought Michelle was trying to punish him, when really this is her act of forgiveness. I really liked this story when I read it as a teenager. My one problem with it is Martin's reference to the book Lolita, as if that's a fantasy realization story. From what I know about the 1955 novel about a man who becomes obsessed with a 12-year-old girl, it's meant to be read as the life story of a sick-minded criminal uh, long since behind bars, not as some sort of forbidden romance. That's not super important for today's topic uh, without delving into an even deeper can of worms, but I wanted to call it out. So, getting back on track, why bring up this short story? Well, thinking about portraits of his children is how I managed my distaste for Stress Patterns romance. I relied on Martin's work so much that I reread the story while working on this script to refresh my memory. In Stress Pattern, Andrew's mind created the shape of a new person, not child, and she is otherwise unrelated to him. However, she does share some of his memories and emotions and feelings of not fitting in. In a lot of ways, Melissa is very much like Sissy from the short story, the sexy 18-year-old born of a thirsty man's desires. Though Barrett tries to convince the reader that Melissa is not Andrew's daughter, the text makes it clear that she did, in some way, come from him. He is her fantasy more than anything. There are some strikingly similar scenes in Portraits and Stress Pattern, namely the love scene. Neither is graphic, but the emotions and feelings are on display. In both cases, the 40- or 50-year-old man is confronted with a woman who is just barely an adult, and the culmination of all his imaginings. He tries to hold himself back, since this person is, in some way, his creation. But she makes the decision to move forward with the act, while he remains unmoving, giving in when she's pressed up against him. The major difference is that Sissy, in the short story, enjoys playing with the slightly incestuous nature of the situation which strangely makes it more palatable, <laughs> for me at least. She calls Richard Daddy, unabashedly, and teases him. Vice is nice, but incest is best. The families that play together stay together. It makes me laugh the way she messes with his discomfort, won't give him an inch. The other characters who come to life from the portraits do the same, confronting Richard with something about himself. Admittedly, giving him a good time is a lot different than calling him a, uh, calling him a nerd or an obsessive, but it's, it's a nice bit of levity in the story. And it helps with the shift from thinking of these characters as his children and realizing they're more parts of himself. The street kid isn't really his firstborn son, but what he wanted to be. And the newspaper man is an alter ego, certainly not a son in the usual sense. Sissy is a rich fantasy like them, only different. And Nicole, the Michelle stand-in, is a portrayal of how brave and resilient he thinks of his real daughter, who he comforted in her 20s as if she were still a little girl. In Stress Pattern, there's an added level of discomfort. Melissa is not a dream come to life from a portrait. She is a new person born from a pod just yesterday. <laughs> Andrew needs to accept that Melissa's existence is inspired by him rather than being the product of him. Just another oddity that is normal on this strange planet. And yet, I can't quite shake the icky feeling I get from the situation. 
I think it's in large part due to how Barrett pays lip service to the fact that Melissa is her own person, less easy than a true fantasy would be to handle. But I disagree. Melissa is written in a completely predictable way. She's forceful when it comes to going to bed with Andrew, but then is up the next morning making him breakfast, smiling at the thought of having his baby. She nags him a lot, sure, but still follows him, cares for him, cares for his son, gets him help when needed, and is pretty much useless as an equal partner, at one point panicking and flipping about. Melissa acts the way I think a lot of men like Barrett would expect women to act. On the one hand, they're individuals with thoughts and feelings, struggling to understand their husbands. On the other, they're weighed down by their own womanness. They'll enjoy paradise once they're dragged to it. And because this is a world without clothes, Melissa does it all naked, or only wearing Andrew's shirt. She has the body of a 22-year-old because that is what he fantasized about, while he's probably in his 40s, as we discussed before. If we're to believe, Barrett, that Melissa is definitely her own person, created yesterday, but with the mind of a 22-year-old adult, then this is still an age gap relationship, and they are still the only two humans on the entire planet before their football jersey son is born. Okay, the helmet-headed baby might stick in my mind more than anything else. I'll give it that. Melissa doesn't have anybody to compare Andrew to, and yet she's the one who's worried he'll be unfaithful in some way. I can't help but think that love and no other options are not mutually exclusive in this situation. Returning to Portraits of His Children, what makes that story work is the juxtaposition of Sissy, the sex object, and Michelle, the daughter. Both call the main character Richard daddy, but for very different reasons. Sissy does it as a joke, as a bit of dirty talk. Michelle does it because she reverts to a very childlike state after her brutal assault and relies on her father for support. And Richard does a good job for once. He moves them to Iowa, he takes her for walks along the river, he hugs her when she feels alone. That is why, when Michelle finds out about the book he's written based on her experiences, she is livid. It is a complete betrayal. Quote, and heavy trigger warning here. Now it's there in every bookstore window, and all my friends know, everybody knows. Strangers come up to me at parties and tell me how sorry they are. You're such a good writer, Daddy. You make it all so real. A book you can't put down. Well, I put it down, but it didn't help. It's all there. Now it will always be there, won't it? Every day, somebody in the world will pick up your book and read it, and I'll get raped again. That's what you did. You finished the job for him, Dad. You violated me, took me without my consent, just like he did. You raped me. You're my own father and you raped me. Unquote. Yeah, it's not hard to see why Richard thinks his daughter wants to punish him, (laughs) to make him suffer the same things she did. And that's what makes the ending good. At some point after that argument, Michelle must have reread the book or done some thinking and realized that, as much as it was wrong of Richard to write it, another in his string of failings as a person that are successes as a writer. At the heart of the story is a woman who was real in Richard's mind. Like Paul Sheldon and Stephen King's Misery, writing and imagination are Richard's downfall and salvation all in one. At the end of the story, Richard refers to Sissy as his true love, but I think that refers more to her imaginary existence than anything. Writing and characters are his true love, his children, And Michelle is able to come to terms with that. And maybe Richard can too. Even if they never talk again, they both accept who Richard is and who the children of his mind are. Stress Pattern doesn't have the advantage of a real daughter or magical portraits. 
It's all about a guy whose mind seems to be warping the world around him. A guy in need of sexual release. <laughs> Even if it's not technically incest, Melissa is still his creation in a way that feels too convenient. The power of Andrew's imagination on the patterns of things around him kind of explains why Ramek gets frustrated with him at one point for simply glancing at another growing seed of a new person, since he could potentially warp it too. But it gets fuzzy when it comes to the intellectual side of things. Are the crazies like Thraxel smarter because their own misshapen bodies are a constant reminder that they don't fit in? Or are they smarter because they are the products of more passionate patterning than usual? Is Melissa witty and stubborn and feminine because she was patterned to be that way? Or is that how she would have been anyway? It's possible Melissa is so feminine because that's how a man like Andrew would imagine a woman to be. In direct contrast to the female inhabitants of this planet who don't seem to behave any differently from the males. Nevertheless, Andrew only interacts with male aliens, the females only popping up to give him seeds or nurse him. Barrett could have known exactly what he was doing by making Melissa the total ideal. Feminine, maternal, 100 pounds, only challenging when it helps the man's emotional growth. In stories like this, male characters seem to get a woman or child to care for, and female characters specifically get a child to care for. Pretty rare to see a totally dependent lad in distress. But I still kind of get the feeling that he tried to give her depth, and it kind of backfired. If you recall from episode one this season, Pierce Anthony also did a lot of female mind exploration in his stories, and it usually ended up feeling a bit off, like something simple was examined a little too closely, rather than being re revealed to be uh, more complex. I don't know, my brain's starting to melt thinking too much about it. <laughs> Maybe I'm just salty from books like Ringworld, where the one female character exists to be young, sexy, a love interest, her greatest skill being luck rather than actual powers or prowess. And Stress Pattern admits that Melissa's appeal is only skin deep. Andrew imagined how his student Melissa would look in bed, how she might smile at him, but he didn't think about the complexity beneath her organs and so on. And well, considering the bizarre shape Andrew's son took due to his frenzied state of mind as he and Melissa head out on their journey, there's no way of knowing how exactly patterning works. Whether or not this is a feminist masterpiece, and the extremely small role played by female characters would indicate it's not, I appreciate Barrett's willingness to write about a man like Andrew with his own daddy issues, you might say. Claps, if that's the punchline Barrett was going for. The narrative really hammers home that we can't control what our children turn out to be, that they're still worth having, so they can just be themselves. Parts give me strong pro-life vibes that I don't really appreciate, such as females going into heat and popping out seed pods that are prioritized over people who already exist, but it ties into Barrett's larger point. At least the females aren't obligated to carry or care for the children. Andrew's son is an abomination he struggles to look at, that he almost strangles, but he's determined to be better than his father, to love this child regardless of how it looks or acts. Andrew wasn't the American football star his father wanted. He was a teacher. And his son, whose bony head looks like a football helmet, will grow up on an alien planet with a non-human mother. <laughs> Does anyone else get King of the Hill fever dream vibes from this? Andrew's emotions radiate out from him on this telepathic world. He creates a wife, a son, and even a father for himself. The woman he could never have, the child he never sired, and a replacement for the father he could never impress. 
the child is also his own alter ego, at least in form. It's hard to say at what point Ramek started to become so affected by Andrew, seeing as he pretty much disappears after the storm and Melissa is born. But he does have many good, wise, kind, fatherly traits. Showing Andrew lessons without telling, coming to get him when there's trouble, refusing to leave a child behind, regardless of what it looks like. Ugh, I've had a hard time deciding how I feel about this book. If you feel like it, please leave me a comment on YouTube to tell me your thoughts and interpretations. I think I've pretty much laid everything out, the story and my mixed feelings. Barrett is a good writer, as well as a deep thinker. The one thing I didn't touch on at all was Andrew's preoccupation with colors throughout the book, though I'm not sure if it ever culminates in anything. While sitting next to his fallen escape capsule, he makes a list called Colors I Have Seen Since I've Been Here. Quote, Dun, brown, umber, gray, sepia, tan, and khaki. A really formidable palette. A wonderland for the colorblind. The rare touch of ochre and olive green were clearly party colors, reserved for special occasions. Unquote. Andrew's whole inner monologue is like that, making wry comments about the landscape or the bright colors inside the dual worm and so on. It was amusing at times, and a little obnoxious at others, much like Forrester from The Age of the Pussyfoot, though that story takes place on a futuristic Earth. There's just something similar about the way these characters want to be stuck in their ways, but can't since the world has changed around them. You either love characters like that, the ultimate ignorant windows into another world, or you hate them. <laughs> in my opinion, the best part of the book is the ending. I really enjoy finding out about the lonely, telepathic, planet-sized plant creature that lives buried in the dirt. Finally, those miraculous water bulbs in the desert make sense. From what I can tell, this is a member of a godlike race of beings that come from a big world with a whole network of these creatures. They got so big and enthusiastic about shaping life that they sent individuals, or pieces of the whole, out into space to land on empty planets. It's not clear what they do with themselves if they discover pre-existing life there. This creature's capsule landed, and at the time, the creature was only about as big as a human man, so maybe it could have unalived itself when it realized the spark of life already existed somewhere. But it didn't, so its roots and bulbs grew out until they covered the entire planet, just beneath the surface. Though its favorite place of consciousness continues to be located where the capsule fell, which is now covered in a shallow ocean. Andrew finds that place by following a line of islands a ways from the shore, though it's never explained if the islands have anything to do with the massive, buried creature or not. It seems to exist more as a network of roots than any big masses. It was also supposed to land with a friend, but, like Andrew, found itself completely alone with no other landed capsules. Its telepathic network made it possible for what sparks of life were already there to take hold and grow, but in a way it didn't expect. The strongest, most active creatures died off, leaving only the most patterned ones who always stay the same, utilizing the psychic grid. Interestingly, all inhabitants of this world are put off by the aura of the network creature's hub of consciousness, all except for Andrew until he's practically standing on top of it. They exist within the psychic field and have no words for things that are simply known, like the fact that more energetic creatures create shockwaves through a community and are therefore turned out. And as they extract information from the network, so the network creature takes what it needs from Andrew's thoughts in order to communicate, thus explaining how this planet works. The network creature can't transmit because it has no one to talk to. 
but the non-thinking creatures who dominate the planet transmit their will over the geography as well as the flora and fauna. They've done so for about 400 million years, wasting time that other species would have used to spread across the galaxy. And the network creature has been forced to watch, only able to save a few small luxuries for itself, like a secret grove of trees. Though a dangerous beast, Andrew is like a breath of fresh air to this being. Who knows what will happen to the world from now on? And that was Stress Pattern. The name seems to be borrowed from linguistics, referring to where emphasis is placed in a spoken word. Clearly, it also has something to do with the stress Andrew undergoes. And there are so many other patterns in this story that it makes sense to have it in the title. Growth patterns, weather patterns, patterning, etc. Andrew breaks the patterns of a world long since set in its ways, set in its patterns. He'll be the catalyst for a new pattern of evolution. Then again, this could be like that episode of Doctor Who, The End of Time. Everyone could end up looking like Andrew Gavin. His son did. His friend was made to look like his father. And the women are sexual fantasies. Perhaps his arrival on this planet will be a lot like a plague after all. If you enjoyed this story, you can learn more about Neil Barrett Jr.'s work at neilbarrettjr.com. And if you're like me, sick of saying and hearing the name Andrew and the word pattern, then maybe you can take a break from Barrett's work for a while. That being said, I really enjoyed the more conversational chapters, the enigmatic back and forth between two or three characters. What did you think? Leave a like on the YouTube video if you enjoyed hearing about this book, and maybe subscribe. You can also follow the Erica Brickley Instagram profile to see my library and what I'm up to. Until next time, bye-bye, Earthlings.